Uh, now the guys kind of pretty much told me I can preach as long as I want. Now that's not something you say to a preacher. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, when you meet someone that you know they're going to be late and you say 12, but you really mean 1215. See, that's what you're supposed to do with the preacher. But uh, so uh, at any rate, I hope you all brought your lunches and I want to uh, I want to read Psalm 90. This morning I want to look at and this is hard for me to do, actually, to cover a whole psalm in one sermon, but I'm going to try to do that this morning. Psalm 90, and I'm going to read it, and uh, just so you know, I'm reading, I, I normally preach uh, at, out of the New American Standard. I'm not sure what you guys use here, ESV or NSV or Legacy, or I don't know, uh, like Legacy? Yeah. Uh, actually, today I'm going to uh, read from the King James. I like the Psalms in the King James. So I, uh, that's the main reason I'm doing it. So purely selfish. But um, let me uh, read Psalm 90 and then we'll pray and then we'll, we'll take a look at this psalm. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. So satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Well, let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we do come in the name of Christ. For that is the only means by which we are acceptable in thy sight. We are thankful for all that you have provided for us, an infinite amount of grace through the person and the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to you today. We thank you for the Word of God, the written Word of God that uh, is your revelation to us. We acknowledge its authority over us. We acknowledge that it is your Word that is inspired and that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction and in righteousness. And Lord, that is the means by which you redeem us or you, uh, you regenerate us. It's the means by which you sanctify us. And so I pray this morning, as we hear the word of God, that you would truly give us uh, teachable hearts. We pray for a heart of humility before the true and the living God, and we pray that you would help us to receive with meekness your word. May you accomplish your purpose in us, and we pray that you would be glorified. We thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me just say a few words of introduction regarding this psalm. I want to observe, first of all, that it was written by Moses. And uh, that's obvious there, obviously, obvious there in the title. It says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. It's the only psalm, as far as we know, that was written by 
Moses. Most of the Psalms, at least half of them, probably, well, more than half of them, written by David. We have a few other authors, but this is the only one that we know of that was written by Moses. It says it's a prayer of Moses, and truly, as you're reading it, uh, you'll notice all how often uh, the author, Moses, uses the second person singular. Lord, thou. Verse 3, thou. Verse uh, 5, thou. It's, he's, he's addressing God. He's, re, he's speaking to God. And the second part of it is really, it's one petition after another. He is, it is a prayer. It's the prayer of Moses. The theme of the psalm is in verse 12. And it itself is a prayer and is the heart of what he's saying in this psalm. And that is, so teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. He asked the Lord to teach us to number our days. And of course, we are to number our days because they are limited. They're coming to an end. And in fact, they're very, they're very few. Uh, and for that reason, they are especially valuable. And we ought to count them. But even beyond the fact that they're limited, and beyond the fact that there are, they are few, it is that after these days are finished, we face judgment. That's a good reason to number our days. So that is the theme. But I want to uh, say a few words, because I think it's very important to understand the psalm well, to think about the context. Now, we don't have a statement of the context, technically. And all you know, sometimes in the psalms of David, sometimes it will say he wrote this when he was fleeing Saul or something like that. It's simply a statement. It's a prayer of Moses. But the context of the psalm is, I think, somewhat clear from the the text from the from the content so clearly this is a psalm that was written during the wilderness wandering when uh and and let me just rehearse your memory in regard to this which i know you're familiar with but you know moses uh, when he was 80 led the people the children of israel out of egypt into the wilderness he led them uh first to sinai and i think as i recall that was about six weeks Till he got to Sinai, and they were at Sinai for a year. And at Sinai, they received the law, they received the tabernacle, they built the tabernacle, and uh, and all that revelation was given. And then after a year, they left, and they went up to the promised land, and they were going to go into the promised land, and they sent spies into the promised land. As you recall, uh, ten of those spies came back and said, "We there's no way, we can't take this land. These people are too big, and these these cities are too strong, and and there's giants in the land. And then there were two, as you know, Joseph, uh, Jacob and yeah, Jacob uh, came to say his name, Joshua. Thank you, Joshua. And Caleb. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bible 101 here. But Joshua and Caleb, uh, the spies, uh, they said, no, we can take it. But all the others said no. And then of course they listened to the ten, and they, and God said, okay, because you don't believe me. Uh, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. I want you to go back for just a minute to Numbers chapter 14, where this is what God said to the children of Israel. In Numbers 14, verse 26, it says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? which murmur against me. I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, says the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall be in the wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness. 
forty years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you search the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against them by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that bring up the evil report upon the Lord died by the plague before the Lord. Well, I'll stop there. Those are sobering words. If you're in the wilderness and you're over 20 and you complained, uh, you know, you remember what they did then. They said, oh, well, wait a minute. We'll go up. <laughs> and so they said, no, we'll go up. And God says, no, you're this, you're condemned. And, and they, and of course they tried to go up and they were defeated. Uh, and they tried to, uh, they tried, and they, of course, were condemned to their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And I want you to think about that for a minute. For 40 years, they were wandering around a desert. I don't know if you've ever been in a desert. Uh, I lived in the southwest for a little while and, and spent some time in the desert. It gets really hot really fast. It's really dry. You don't want to be out. Can you imagine 40 years wandering around in a hot, dry desert, going from place to place, just wandering aimlessly, just waiting to die? You know you're not going to enter the land. You've been told you're not going to enter the land. You're going to do this for 40 years. You, you, you have no... You have no retirement plan. You have no plan to see the world. You have no plan to settle down in some little house and have a family and kids. You're just wandering around this wilderness for 40 years waiting to die. It's kind of depressing. But that was their situation. And that is the situation in Psalm 90. And that is the context, I think, ultimately of this psalm. But I want to point out that it's not simply a reference. This psalm is not simply referencing Israel, although I think it is. And, uh, but I want to suggest to you <clears throat> that it's really the broader application is this is, this is the state of all mankind. This is the state of the human race. We are wandering in a desert under the wrath of God waiting to die. That's the state of the human race. Now, when I say it's applied to the whole, all of mankind, I'm not just saying that because it's, I mean, it really the psalm itself points this out. So if you look, for example, uh, he says in verse 3, saying to God, Thou turnest men to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. Man is cursed to die. He's not just talking about Israel. He's talking about the human race. And so, as you come to this psalm, we really are speaking about why we should number our days and how we should number our days, and that is the outline. If I can put it this way, verses 1 through 11, we see why we should number our days. And in verses 12 through 17, we see how we should number our days. And uh, if I can just summarize it this way, why we should number our days? Uh, because we are under the wrath of God. How we should number our days? By seeking the mercy of God. That really is the message of the psalm. So let me first of all uh, spend some time in verses 1 through 11 here and uh, point out why we should number our days. And again, why ultimately, if I can summarize the whole argument, is it is because we are under the wrath of God. And I would give you three points here. First of all, I would observe in verses 1 and 2 the inescapability of God. Secondly, in verses 3 through 8, the certainty of death. And then verses 9 through 11, the vanity of life. Again, that's the state of the human race outside of. Christ. 
So if you see in verses 1 and 2, he says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And here I would say this is speaking of what I would call the inescapability of God. He says God is our dwelling place. I think what Moses is saying is something very similar to what Paul said when he said, in him we live and move and have our being. Everything we have and are is we dwell in God. Everything is from God. He is our creator. There is no escaping God. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. Turn with me back to that passage in Acts 17 where, where Paul spoke in uh, Mars on Mars Hill. And of course, he was not speaking to Jews. He was not speaking to Christians. He was speaking to pagans. And uh, in verse 24, this is kind of picking up partway through the sermon, he says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. That's quite a statement. Uh, man is not independent. He likes to think of himself as independent. But he's not independent. Everything he has, everything, is from God. Whatever you have, whatever you have materially, whatever you have in regard to your circumstances in this world, everything you eat everything, you drink every blessing, every good thing that you have. If you have a husband, a wife, children, you have friends, if you have good looks, if you whatever you have, it's the gift of God. It's from God. It says in verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us for in him, and here he's quoting one of their poets, for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring. And that, I think, is what fundamentally Moses is saying when he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, you are God from everlasting. Before the mountains were brought forth, before anything was created, you are God forever and ever and ever. And we have our being in you. Now, man would love desperately to escape God. I like to say uh, man would like to do an end run around God. You know what an end run is? If you if you watch football, you know, you can run up the middle or you can do an end run and you can you, you hope your running back is faster than their linebackers and you go and you run out and you try to get around them so they go upfield. And people try to do that with God. They try to do an end run around you can't do an end run around God. There is no way to escape God. Or as uh, Thomas Paine would call it, the tyranny of God. You know, people do hate God. And they try to escape Him. And the truth is, there is no escaping God. People can say they don't believe in Him. They can say, well, I believe in evolution. And they can say, well, I believe God is... You can say whatever you want, but you can't escape God. So we better number our days. Right? But I want you to observe, secondly, in regard to this, the certainty of death. Verses 3 through 8. It says, Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, you children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers, for we are consumed by thine 
anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Well, these are sobering words. But all of them point to the fact that we are going to die. In fact, we are all pointed to death. It says in verse 3, Thou turnest man to destruction. And this is God. God does this. We are under the curse because of sin. And when Adam sinned, basically God said to man, He turned him to destruction. You will die. And then he said, return. In other words, that's really a call to repent. In fact, the word here, but it's used twice in this verse. In the Hebrew, it's the little word shuv, which is a very common Hebrew word that means simply to turn, uh, sometimes return. But it's a word that's often translated, rightly, repent. Uh, but he says, so in other words, uh, again, verse 3, when he says, thou turnest man, that's the word shuv, thou turnest man to destruction. And then said, return, you children of men. It was a call to repentance. But man, Man is going to die because it's God's decree because of his sin. There's no escaping that. There's no escaping death. You know, it's interesting to me how, I mean, we're living in a really strange age, as you know, and, uh, you know, the scientists now, some of them, and it's a very religious thing, you know, they're very, they talk about you know, overcoming death and actually obtaining eternal life. It's like Star Trek or something. It's weird stuff. But I will tell you, they, it, it's doomed to failure because God is God. <laughs> because you can't escape God's decree. You can't escape what God has said. You cannot undo what God has said. You cannot resist what God has said or what he does. He is the Lord. He is the creator. I want you to notice in verses 5 through 7 here the nature of this destruction or the nature of this condemnation. He says, um, Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. And I would argue here that he's basically using three metaphors or three analogies that really describe our situation and uh, the nature of this destruction. That we are, as a human race, headed for destruction. We are headed for death. All of us, every single one of us. He says, thou carriest them away as with a flood. And I think this is pointing to the irresistibility of the fact that we're headed to destruction. You know, a flood is something that carries you away. You can't resist it. And uh, I remember, you remember, I don't know, it's probably almost 20 years ago, that tsunami that was in the Indian Ocean. I don't know what year that was, I forget. But, uh, you know, those people, you remember that uh, the water, the tide went way out because of the the, the water, the uh, earthquake out there, right? And uh, the the tide went, and people walked out way out into the you know into the beyond where the water usually was, and then all of a sudden, just this wall of water just came in on them, swept them all away. Now, it doesn't matter what they did. They, they, they could do nothing. You can't swim against it. You can't. You're just overwhelmed by it. It's completely overwhelming. There is nothing you can do. And that's the picture. It's like a flood. The wrath of God on the world is like a flood. It will take every last one of them away. And then he says, they are as asleep. And I think here this is pointing to their ignorance. They're not, they're totally oblivious to the fact. In fact, it's amazing to me how, although it's obvious that we're all going to die, and it's amazing, and it's obvious that we're under the wrath of God as you look at the world, it's amazing how people act as if it isn't true. And they live their life as if they're going to live forever. And they create in their minds a God that doesn't judge. And they create in their mind a God that's just, you know, a grandfather up there who just loves everybody and gives everybody, you know, group hug. God loves us. And they create this God in their mind. And they're in total oblivion to the fact that they are under the wrath of God. And it's coming. It's like this huge wave that's just waiting to crash on top of humanity. The wrath of God is there 
and yet it's as though they are asleep. They're oblivious to what is happening. And then he says, in the morning they are like grass, which grows up. And here I think it's speaking of the imminence of this wrath, of this destruction, and the brevity of time that we have until it comes, until death comes. And he likens it to grass. Well, when you think of grass, you think of something that's, first of all, I think this is, by the way, this is a metaphor that's used uh, later by David. It's used in the New Testament by Peter. It's used repeatedly. And uh, as far as I know, this is the first place it's used, and it's used by Moses. And he says, we're like grass. It's used by Isaiah, right? And so he says, um, when you think of grass, you think of something that is insignificant. You also think of something that there's a lot of. And uh, and I often think of this, and you know, I, again, to the to the pagan, this is extremely painful and depressing. And I want to say to a Christian, this is not depressing. Okay, I say this, it's not depressing. But really, when you think about it from a human perspective, I am, I'm like a, a blade of grass in thousands of acres of grass. Truly. We're utterly insignificant. And, you know, if you watch grass, it grows up pretty quickly if you have the right weather. If you have a little sun and a little rain, you know, we've had a lot of rain lately, and the sun comes out, and you can almost see the grass grow. You know, and then I get out my lawnmower, you know, and I'm mowing the grass down, and just it's just like that, they're gone, right? It's gone. And that's, that's the picture. It grows up, and then it's mowed that evening. Brevity of our life. This wrath of God, this destruction that is coming upon every human being, is right before us. It's right there. In the morning it flourishes and grows up, in the evening it is cut down and withers. And in almost a kind of a summary, for we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. That is the state of the human race. Destruction is coming, and by the way, in the meantime, we have nothing but trouble. Because we're under the wrath of God. <laughs> In verse 8, it gives the reason we are under the wrath of God. It's not because God is mean. I like to always say this. God's not mean at all. God is not a tyrant. In fact, God is, and this is why he's angry, God is infinitely good. That's why he's, that's why he's angry. The problem is we're not good. He says in verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. This is why we are under the wrath of God, because we are all sinners, because we all break his law, because we are all foolish and ungodly and wicked. That's a word that describes every human being. I find it interesting that everybody and their brother thinks they're good. Everybody thinks they're fundamentally good. I mean, if you go down here to the penitentiary and you have people on death row, their mother's going to come in and say, oh, but my son, he's good at heart. He killed 25 people, but he's really good at heart. And that's how people think. It doesn't... But listen, none of us is good. Now, we present ourselves before each other as good. You know, we kind of like, it's like the Facebook thing where you present the best side of you and everything. And you present yourself as being this perfect person who does everything. Well, and look at all my nice friends and look at all the cool places I go and look at the nice house I have and all the cool things I do and what a nice person I am and how many good things I do for people. And you kind of present this picture of yourself, right? And, uh, and then, as you do that, you know, as you do nice things for people, and then people will tell you. That really helps, right? People will tell you, well, you're such a nice person. You're such a good person. And after a while, you start to believe it. And But notice, he says, and our secret sins before the light of your countenance. And we forget, God sees 
everything, including your thoughts. He sees all your desires, all your lusts, all your secret uh, purposes, your dishonesty, lying, cheating, covetousness, envy, laziness. Oh, the list goes on, right? We have a long, it's amazing how much vocabulary we have for sin because there's so much, you know, and you start thinking about, but he sees, you know, it's like uh, Samuel, or the Lord told Samuel when, when uh, he went to anoint David, he said, you look on the outward, but I look on the heart. And I think uh, if we could understand if we could see, I always like to say, if we could see what God sees in every human heart, we would understand why he's angry. We could understand why the wrath of God is on the world. May I remind you what this true standard of goodness is, by the way. Uh, when I, when, sometimes when I would go out, I haven't done this for about, go street witnessing, and you ask people, do you think you're a good person? And uh, people always say, yes, of course. And people always think of themselves as good. And they like to talk about themselves. And so you ask them, well, why do you think you're good? And they'll tell you. I mean, it's very predictable what they say. You could almost, I bet you, you could, if I ask you, you could probably tell me exactly what they said. But they say, well, I've never killed anybody. And, you know, I'm generally a nice person. I do nice things for people. I've never cheated on my wife and blah, blah, blah. But I will tell you, that's, that's maybe moral, but that's not goodness in the ultimate. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what goodness is. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It is to do everything that you do, say everything that you say, think everything you think for the glory of God. Out of love for Him, in humility before Him. To please Him. Everything. None of us even comes remotely close to that in any given day. God is angry because he's good. He's the creator, right? Um, this is the reason we are under the wrath of God. Look at verses 9 through 11, and you see not only the certainty of death, but because of death, really, the vanity of life. He says in verse 9, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. That's true, isn't it? You know, we live this life, and uh, even if we live a good life, you know, and some people do live a good life, it's all with this cloud hanging over us. It's all vanity. It's all really kind of fleeting. The best of the things that we have are are fleeting. It says, uh, we spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are three score years and ten, that's seventy. And if by reason of strength they be four score years, that's eighty, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. This sounds a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? But the you know the idea here, you know, when I was young and uh you look ahead of life and you think, well, you know, you want to live a long life and you think of, uh, you know, living to your 90 or, uh, you know, 100 and you say you want to live a good long life. And the older I get and the more, honestly, you walk in the with the Lord, and it's the honest truth, the more you just say, Lord, whenever you're ready to take me, I'm ready to go. Because, you know what, you live 70 years, okay. But, you know, you live to 80, you know what? It's just more labor and sorrow. It's just, you know, and the older you get, honestly, the more physical ailments you have. It's Ecclesiastes 12, right? The more you, you know, your eyes start to go, your hearing starts to go, your teeth start to go. You can't you can't do the things you used to do. I know that you you guys that are young here, you think you're, you're laughing about this, but I'm telling you, the older you get, the more you see. You just, you know, you just can't do the stuff you used to do. Uh, you know, used to used to play a lot of basketball. I'm I'm past those days. You know, it's just you get your uh, you just can't do what you used to do, and uh, be kind of. But but all that to say, 
life truly is full of vanity. He says, who knows the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Well, I just observed the fact that truly, as people deal with the fact that we are going to die, we are under the wrath of God, and in fact, life is vain, it's short. There are different responses that people have to that, and uh, the flesh has to that. Some people truly get depressed, and... uh, it's not unusual, and I would say this is especially true of contemplative type of people or people that think seriously about life, and there are a lot of people that do. Quite frankly, today there are a lot of people that don't. But but historically, the philosopher type, those are the people that are probably most given, I think, to suicide because as they think deeply about our situation and our plight as a human race, it becomes meaningless. And it becomes empty. Some people approach this just by almost like a positive thinking. You know, they just kind of, you know, make the most of it, the best of it. We're just going to look on the positive side. We're not going to look at it. I mean, that, that works for a while, maybe, until things start falling apart. And truly, they do sometimes, you know. And uh, when things, you know, everything goes bad and then you... Maybe you lose your husband or you lose your wife or maybe you lose a child. And then and then maybe you have really serious health problems and maybe not, now you can't even enjoy life anymore because you don't even feel good. You wake up, you have headaches, and, and life is really bad. It's hard to be, you know, after a while, that positive thinking stuff just you know, it only goes so far, right? Some people, it's escape. You know, their response to this is, I don't want to think about this. I don't even care about this. I'm just going to enjoy life. I'm just going to go out and make the most of it. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to see the world. I'm going to do the, every, you know, just going to enjoy life. Well, that works until it's done. And it's like, you know, the end is coming, my friend. Uh, the wrath of God is for eternity. That isn't going to be much help. And uh, while it may look impressive for a short time, it's a very short time. Kind of like the fireworks the other night, you know, in Avon Lake. Uh, You know, they were really impressive, but, you know, they end. And it's done. But I think ultimately where men get to in regard to this is they become angry. And they become angry at God. And they realize that they're under the wrath of God. And that judgment is coming. And that death is coming. And when bad things really start to happen to them, their natural response as rebels is they hate God. And they get angry at God. And as Psalm 2 says, they rage against God. And they even become so stupid and so foolish Foaming at the mouth, stupid. They conspire against God. What does it say to throw off his bands? Cast off his cords. What are his cords? His cords are his law. The cords are the curse of the law because of their sin. And man desperately in anger and hatred of God seeks to get rid of God. But he can't. He's inescapable. Well, that leads us then to the second half of the psalm. And if the psalm ended there, we'd be depressed. But truly, the answer to this, that's that's why we should number our days. Now, he says in verses 12 through 17, how we should number our days. And the answer to that is really by seeking God. This is so not intuitive to the flesh. This is so not intuitive to human nature to actually seek the one whose wrath you are under. That is seeking his mercy. And that's exactly what we are called to. Let me read this section again. Verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. 
O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Let me say a word about the whole section. This is really, ultimately, this is humility before God. And notice he begins with a request. It is, oh, teach us, which is automatically, he is looking to the Lord immediately saying, Lord, you teach us. I desperately need to learn. This is not somebody picking themselves up by their own wisdom, by their own strength, saying, I'm going to, I can do this. This is someone saying, oh, God, teach me. And this is where everything begins with the Lord. And it is seeking God. And so you have, as you walk through this, you have a series of petitions. And this is someone who is calling upon the Lord. My friend, if men and women and children understood what it means to be under the wrath of God and what is coming. They would call upon the Lord. And I want you to observe there is a kind of a progression here. And it's actually quite beautiful and it's actually quite complete. And this is a statement really of what it means to know the the grace and the mercy of God and to walk with God. And he begins in verse 12, and I would say this, first of all, we say, how should we number our days? Well, first of all, by seeking his wisdom. He says in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You say, what is Wisdom. Wisdom, we might say, is skillful living. Is the technical definition of it. Wisdom is how to live. See, if there's one thing that we need to learn, it is how to live in light of the fact that we're under the wrath of God and that judgment is coming. In fact, this is really the message of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And how does how does he end that book? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Why? Because God will bring everything into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's wisdom. That's how wisdom is defined throughout the Old Testament. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I implore you to remember day after day, there is really, you have one thing to do in life. There is only one thing to do. It is to fear God. It is to walk with God. There is nothing else. You know, people sometimes think about priorities and they say, well, my priorities are like this. You know, God, husband, wife, children, work. No. You have one priority. It is to please the Lord. It is to walk with God. It is to fear God. Now, if you fear God, you walk with God, you will love your wife, you will raise your children in a godly way, and you will be a great employee. But you have one thing to do today. It's God's will. This is wisdom. And this is why it's so important that we seek wisdom because we're under the wrath of God. So teach us a number of days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That is really to fear the Lord. And what does it look like when one fears the Lord? The fear of the Lord always seeks or always results in 
humility before the Lord and seeking his mercy. And that's what happens in the verse next verse. He says, return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy. Back at verse 13, that word return is the same word. And I think it's meant to hearken back all the way back to verse 3. When God said to the children of men, return. You children of men, return. That means repent. So God said to the God said to mankind, repent. And here in verse 13, this is what happens when a man returns. This is what happens when a man repents. He calls upon the Lord and he says, Lord, return. He seeks the Lord. He says, return and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. And the idea here is, to relent of his wrath. When we say repent, obviously God's not sinning. He doesn't need to repent. But the idea is he's calling for mercy that the Lord would not exercise his wrath on him. And this is what true humility does. Calls upon the Lord and says, Lord, have mercy upon me. Return. It's someone who seeks the Lord and seeks his mercy And he says, oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy. And by the way, this is the only way that anybody could ever be satisfied in this life. You will not be satisfied with the things of this world. But when we call upon the Lord and seek him alone and humble ourselves before him, he will satisfy us. And notice what it says in verse 14, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is the secret to truly a joyful, happy life. It is to know the mercy of God. It is to know God. It says in verse 15, Make us glad according to the days wherein the house afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. So we number our days by seeking His wisdom, That is the fear of the Lord. We number our days by seeking His mercy. And we number our days by, if I can put it this way, seeking His joy. And, uh, you know, when we know God and when we are satisfied by His mercy, then we do have joy. And it's not based on the circumstances of this world. It's not based on the circumstances of this life. It's not based on whether or not I'm successful in this world. It's not based on how much money I have or don't have. It's not based on whether I have health or not. It's not based on whether uh, people treat me well. It's not based on any of that. Listen, if we understood just what God has redeemed us from, we could never ever complain again about anything. Because whatever you have in this life, whatever you have in this life, it's better than you deserve. Way better than you deserve. You know what? If the Lord took everything from me, the Lord has been very gracious to me. I'm thankful every day for the many things He's given me in this life. He's been so kind. But you know what? If He took it all away, First of all, he has the right. And secondly, I would have no right to complain ever about anything. And when you come to that place, you find joy. Because it's not based on what you have or what you experience from day to day based on knowing God. Let me go one step further. Verse 16. It's by seeking His glory. It says, Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. Again, I think what he's doing, again, this is a, a, a petition as well. This is saying, Lord, let us see your work. Let us see your glory. When you are satisfied with His mercy and you are filled with His joy, you will love God. You will see the greatness of His work. You will see the greatness of His glory. You will glorify in God. You will praise Him and thank Him very naturally. 
You will see his greatness. You will see his goodness. You will see his wisdom. You will see his power. You will see his glory. And this is the beauty, truly, of receiving mercy. You will seek to know him and walk with him. And if I can put it this way, as the psalmist says in a couple different places, the Lord becomes your portion. It's not the stuff that God gives you. That's not your portion. The Lord is my portion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 73. Can you say that? Charles Rusty wrote, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. Now when we say that, it doesn't mean that we don't love you know, the people that are in our lives. You know, we love our wives and our children. We love our friends. We love the body of Christ. Uh, it's not to say we can't enjoy good things in this life. You know, the Lord blesses us with, with many good things. You know, uh, we go out to eat and enjoy a good meal. I mean, that's a blessing from God. We can say, thank you, Lord. But listen, at the end of the day, there's only one thing as a Christian that we can truly say is our portion. You know, you can take all these other things away, and that's okay. But there's one thing, I'm, there is one thing, and that is Christ. Remember what God said to Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. He didn't say, I'll give you an exceeding great reward. He said, I am your exceeding great reward. This is the beauty of knowing the Lord. I'll give you one last thing. Verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. And here, we see, again, by numbering our days, by seeking His wisdom, by seeking His mercy, by seeking His joy, by seeking His glory, and I would say here in verse 17, by seeking His blessing on all of life. And here's what here's what he's speaking of in verse 17. He says, that, let the beauty of the Lord our God, I think some of the translations say favor, but I actually like the word beauty, because in the, I looked it up in the lexicon, and it, it means it means lovely, uh, it means delightful, and beauty is a good translation. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and I think he's here talking about a beautiful life. And what is a beautiful life? Remember how oftentimes in the Psalm it talks about the beauty of holiness. It's a pure life, and May I say, this is what the redeemed desire more than anything else in life. It is for the beauty of the Lord to be upon them. That is a life of of purity, a life of holiness. If I can say it this way, a life that is truly pleasing to God and that is honoring to God. And may I say, that is truly a beautiful thing. It is a glorious thing when the beauty of the Lord is upon his people. A life of one who actually does love God, walk with God, who keeps his commandments by the grace of God. It's all, of course, by the grace of God and by the power of God. And then he says, Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Now he's talking about his the things he does, the works, the things that used to be vain and empty. Listen, now when you walk with God and you walk in wisdom and you walk in the fear of the Lord and you receive His mercy, now everything you do, I think is one of the most beautiful things of being a Christian. Everything you do has purpose. Everything. Even when, and may I say especially when, nobody even sees you. In fact, as you grow in Christ truly, you want less and less people to see you. You're not doing it for people. You know, you're, it's nice when people come along, and by God's grace, God's gracious and he brings people sometimes as appreciative for what you do. I'm thankful people come and, you know, I do something very public, I preach, and people come and they thank me. I'm, I'm very thankful for that, it's very kind. But truly, I hope I can say with all my heart, that's not why I preach. Listen, everything you do, everything you do 
as a believer now has immeasurable value and purpose because you're doing it in Christ, for Christ, for his glory. And you know, this is the beautiful thing about being a Christian in Christ, forgiven. You can now do something that you couldn't do as an unbeliever. You can please God. That's a beautiful thing. You can please God with your very thoughts. You know, when someone curses you out and you, with a sincere heart, you know, don't get angry and actually treat them kindly and pray for them. Is that beautiful? Is that a changed heart? Listen, that, and you know what? No one maybe will ever know the thing you did or didn't do. It doesn't matter because God knows. And because you know, and you do, right, that it's the grace of God in you, it's not a thing of pride because you know it's not something you created. It's God's grace. You know, it's all all glory and honor be to him. I will say when we get to heaven, nobody's going to stand around saying, wow, you know, I was really good and I handled that really well and that was awesome. No, we're all going to be talking about the glory and the greatness of Christ. He's going to be the only great one there, Christ. Because whatever goodness was in us was a gift from him. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Whatever we have, we have because of Christ. We praise his name. But it brings it brings amazing meaning to everything that we do. And when we number our days, now this brings purpose to all of life. It brings purpose to trials. It brings purpose to every difficult thing. Listen, something comes into your life today. It might be little. Receive it as from the Lord. And respond to it knowing that you can glorify God in the smallest thing. Don't complain. Never complain. Never complain. I beg of you, never complain about anything. It shows an amazing blindness. Do not complain. I would say lusters are complaints. Listen, you have far you have far less pain and suffering than you deserve. Always remember that. God has delivered you by his grace through Christ. Give him thanks. Let me just close by taking you, and obviously all of this, all of God's grace and mercy come through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to just read briefly 1 Corinthians 15, from 1 Corinthians 15. We know that Obviously, the vanity of this world, the vanity of death, and the fact of uh, being under the wrath of God has all been taken away for the believer through the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and actually took that vanity upon himself, as it were, took our sin upon himself. And even though he were perfect, he was perfect, gave his life as an atonement for our sins. And uh, he speaks of the gospel here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, "More, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ, and here's the gospel, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Those sins and secret sins that were there before God's presence all the time, they have been washed away. We are no longer in Christ. We are no longer uh, under the wrath of God. And because of his crucifixion because of his resurrection we now have purpose in life and so he ends this chapter in verse 57 but thanks be to god which gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brethren be ye steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord i love that always abounding in the work of the lord that you know what that means everything you do do for the glory of god do it Do the Lord's will, not your own will. Do the Lord's will. Do everything for his glory. Abound in the work of the Lord. 
For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So teach us to number our days. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that we, when we humble ourselves before you and call upon you in the name of Christ, and ask for mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You justify us. And you change our hearts. And you deliver us from your wrath. And amazing truth, you bless us. You bless us eternally. You give us all things by your grace. Father, we thank you that through Christ we are no longer under the wrath of God, that through Christ life is no longer empty and meaningless. We're no longer wandering around a desert waiting to die. But we're thankful, Lord, that in Christ everything we do has purpose. May we truly live for your glory. May we seek your honor in every little thing that we do, in every response, in every reaction, in all our ways, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit, by your grace, would accomplish in us uh, that which only you can accomplish. Lord, teach us to honor you in all that we do. Lord, even today, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at Medina Bible. Dot O-R-G. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.